Well, good morning, saints. What a great hope we have in Christ that His mercy indeed is more. And what a joy it is to praise Him for the mercy that He has shown us. As we continue our journey through John 14, we come back to that upper room. Jesus has displayed His humble, serving love toward the disciples by washing their feet. And now He's focused in on loving them by teaching them. He's preparing them for the difficult events that lie ahead and for His departure from them. He knows their hearts are troubled by the news that He is going away and that they cannot come with Him where He is going, and so He speaks words of comfort to them. Jesus presents Himself as the medicine that their troubled hearts need. They need to believe in Him. The more they trust in Him, the more their troubled hearts will be stabilized. The more they recognize who He is and the implications that that has for their lives, the more they will be able to get their emotions under control. Jesus conveyed about Himself that He was committed to coming back for them, to bring them to the Father's house where there are many dwelling places, one for each of them. He won't leave them forever in this fallen world. This world is not their home. He will come for them later. Jesus describes Himself as the way to the Father in heaven. Who Jesus is and what He is going to do would be the basis for their acceptance into heaven. He is the truth that counters the devil's lies. He is the life that raises up dead souls. He is the way to the Father. Jesus gave the disciples hope concerning their future as they dealt with present troubles. He called them to believe in Him. In our passage this morning, Jesus will continue to equip His disciples to deal properly with their troubled hearts by speaking even more explicitly to them about who He is. That's what they need. Our text is John 14, verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, we come to You hungry to hear from You. 
Help us to gain a clearer grasp of who Christ is, what he has done, and the implications of that for our lives. May we behold his majesty with greater clarity. May we see Christ exalted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw that Jesus described himself as the only way to the Father. And in our text this morning, Jesus speaks of how the Father is revealed in him. He continues to stretch the disciples' understanding of who he is. We find that the disciples have what we could call blurry vision of Jesus due to the immaturity of their faith. And we have to recognize that the same is true of us. Our view of Christ is not perfect. We can always have a sharper view of him. And so we need to keep growing in knowing Christ. As we walk through this text, we're going to see how Jesus dealt with the blurry vision that the disciples had of him. Because the more clearly that they see Christ, the more their troubled hearts will be at peace. As we come to this text, the first thing that we see Jesus do is that Jesus exposes the disciples' blurry vision of him, verses 7 through 9. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And we should note here that the yous are plural. Jesus is addressing the group in what he's saying here. He's not just addressing Thomas, to whom he had been speaking. Thomas brought up the way, and Jesus is answering that, but he's, he's speaking here to the group. He makes a connection here between knowing him and knowing the Father. This is a first-class conditional clause which basically assumes the first part of the statement for the sake of the argument of the rest that is said. And so, if you had known me, which you have, then you will know my Father also. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That's the basic connection that Jesus is making for the disciples. He explains to them that knowing Jesus is the means to knowing the Father. And Jesus continues on in verse 7, From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now those hymns here refer to Jesus' Father. You know my Father. You have seen my Father. In knowing me, you know and see my Father. Jesus is effectively saying about himself that he is God. He is pointing out that he possesses the same divine nature as his Father. So that to see him is to see the Father. But why does Jesus say the words, from now on? From now on you know him and have seen him. What's the significance of those words? Well, Jesus has just made his most explicit statement yet concerning his divinity to the disciples. He's been stretching the disciples. He's been getting more and more explicit with them about his divinity. And in this 
very moment and in the hours and in the days and in the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to significantly raise the disciples' understanding of his equality in nature with the Father. He is not only a man, he is God. And so with the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus coming shortly, plus the sending of the Spirit that will follow, we'll be getting into that as we continue our time peeking into this upper room. With Jesus' explicit statements about himself here, he is setting up for a pivotal time in terms of the disciples' understanding being raised to new heights as they grapple with the implications of Jesus being the Son of God. Well, this statement from Jesus provokes a response from another disciple. We've been seeing already how the disciples are displaying the immaturity of their faith through their interactions with Jesus in the upper room, the things that they're wrestling with. And what they say reveals a mixture of of both their devotion to Jesus, it's part of why they're asking these kinds of questions, but it also shows their blurry vision of Jesus as he continues to respond and to correct and to sharpen them. We saw it with Peter and then with Thomas, and now it's Philip. Philip is moved by Jesus' comment in verse 7 to speak up in response to that in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's interesting. It seems like what Jesus had just said, for the most part, just seemed to sail right by Philip. Evidently, what stuck out to Philip is that Jesus is saying something about seeing the Father. Jesus mentioned seeing the Father, and that catches Philip's attention. But he totally passes over Jesus' main point, which is basically that they have seen the Father. Jesus says, from now on, you know and have seen the Father. And so then Philip says, show us the Father. Now, Philip is likely requesting that Jesus facilitate some kind of theophany for them. A theophany is a, a miraculous, visible manifestation of God's glory. And Philip may be thinking of the time when God causes glory to pass before Moses. You may recall that Moses says to the Lord, I pray you show me your glory. And Philip says here in a similar manner, Lord, show us the Father. Now there's a positive element to, to, to what Philip is, is saying here. He, he wants to see the Father. He wants to be connected to the Father. But he's not really listened properly to Jesus. We're noticing that about each of these disciples. They're not really listening properly to him. Philip's got his his own idea in mind of what needs to happen here, what they need. Now, we should get acquainted with with Philip a bit to to understand how he thinks. Now, in John 
1, we can turn there and see Jesus initially calling Philip to follow him. John 1, verses 43 through 45. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What responsiveness we see in Philip to Jesus' call to follow him. He's going to follow Christ, and not only that, but he, he goes to find Nathaniel to, to bring someone else to tell them, look who we found. He identifies their Jesus as the one that Moses and the prophets had written about. So he has at least this recognition of Jesus. Now let's go to chapter 6. We see Philip tested by Jesus. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little, even a little. It's not going to work. Philip seems to have already been crunching the numbers in his head when Jesus approaches him. And his focus is just too narrowed. He's accounting for the people. He's accounting for resources to acquire bread. But he's not accounting for what Jesus brings to the situation. Jesus blows all the calculations out of the water. He's the creator. So he can take five barley loaves and two fish that Andrew locates and feed thousands of people from it. So Philip underestimates Jesus here, and he's still underestimating Jesus in the upper room. If we come back to John 14, Philip seems to have picked up on the theme of seeing the Father, just as Jesus had mentioned it, but he's missed the main point that Knowing and seeing Jesus is the means to knowing and seeing the Father. And that's why Jesus reacts the way that he does in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Philip's been short-sighted in his calculations here. He's been short-sighted in in seeing Jesus for the fullness of, of who he is. And we should note here that the first you is plural. Have I not been with all of you so long? But then he goes to the singular when he says that he has not come to, to know him. So now he, he gets personal at this point with Philip. And it's a powerful point that Jesus is making here. Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? After all, this, that's precisely what Jesus has been doing this whole time for the last three years that he's been with them. The irony of Philip's request is, that, is astounding. Jesus says, how can you say that, Philip? You've been with me three years, and yet you still do not recognize that when you see me, you see the Father. Now, when Jesus says the words, you have not come to know me, it's not that Jesus is saying that, that Jesus is a complete stranger to Philip, that Philip doesn't know him at all, but Philip's vision of Jesus is still very blurry. After all this time that he spent with Jesus, his knowledge of the Lord is significantly limited when you consider the amount of exposure that he's had to the Lord up close and personal. And so what we're seeing here with Philip and with the disciples, it gives us a sense of the profound effect that the fall of man into sin has had on the human heart. Because the problem is not with Jesus. He reveals the Father perfectly by virtue of who He is. They've had a perfect testimony right in front of them. What we see here is that even the heart of the one who has trusted Christ at some level still deals with the flesh still deals with indwelling sin that remains. There's a, a dullness of hearing that we're seeing with the disciples. We saw it with Peter. He was not listening to Jesus well. We saw it with Thomas. He was not listening to Jesus well. And now we see it with Philip. He is not listening to Jesus well. He caught that Jesus was saying something about seeing the Father, but he missed They've already seen the Father by virtue of seeing Jesus. Their dullness of hearing Jesus leads them to then have a blurry vision of Jesus. It's not that they have no picture at all of who He is, but it's a blurry one that will continue to come into focus as their faith in Him grows. And as they witness his death and resurrection and ascension. And, and when Jesus sends his spirit to them, the clarity is going to keep coming to them. Jesus had previously told them that they were clean. So we know that they have a genuine saving belief in him as immature as it is. It's an immature faith. They still have dullness in their hearing of Jesus, and it results in the blurry vision of Jesus. So, this is what we see with 
Philip. This is what we see with the disciples. And it's easy for us to, to, to look at Philip, to see the situation, to recognize the dullness, to recognize the blur. But it's harder to see it in ourselves. But we all have it. We have our own dullness of hearing the Lord. We hear the words that Jesus says, but we don't always take them to heart. Or we focus in on something that interests us, but we miss the main point of what he says. Or we miss how it applies to us. We have our own dullness of hearing. We also have our own blurry vision of Jesus. None of us have perfect theology. Every believer is in process. There's always room for us to grow. So we should be asking the Lord to grant us the humility to be willing to see where our hearing is dull, where our vision of Christ is blurred. We should be praying for the Lord to expose in our lives those things that hinder us from listening properly to Him. Those things that get us disconnected from His Word. We should ask the Lord to expose the sin and unbelief in us that we need to repent of. Those things that cloud and skew our understanding of His Word. May we confess and forsake sin and unbelief that the Lord is so merciful to expose in us that we might see more clearly, that we might hear more clearly from Him. Well, in these first few verses, we see that Jesus exposes the disciples' blurry vision of Him. They don't listen well. Therefore, they have a blurred perspective on Him. They have faith, but it's an immature faith that needs to be stretched and needs to be grown. And Jesus is lovingly working on them toward that end. Great patience we see from our Lord. Great love as He continues to press into teaching them. So that leads us to our second observation of what Jesus is doing here with the disciples to address their blurry vision of Him. Now Jesus sharpens the disciples' blurry vision of Him. Verses 10 and 11. And what Jesus is going to do here is He is going to sharpen their vision of Him by continuing to teach them about Himself. They need the truth about Him to bring their blurry vision of Him into focus. Like when you adjust the camera lens so you can see more clearly, more crisply. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus brings the focus back to the main point that he was driving at before Philip got sidetracked. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Now, we must be careful not to move past this without taking some time to recognize the significance of what Jesus is revealing here. He is revealing a significant Trinitarian doctrine, the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity in each other. 
The Greek theological term associated with this mutual indwelling is perichoresis, and the Latin term is circumincessio. And what's important about this Trinitarian doctrine in particular is that it emphasizes the persons of the Trinity that while they are distinct from each other, yet they are inseparable from each other. They mutually indwell each other. With respect to the essence or nature or being of God, all three persons are equal and are one. They each possess the same pure divine essence or substance in its entirety. And God's essence is undivided. So the persons are distinct, yet inseparable, as they are one divine essence. One God subsisting as three distinct but inseparable persons. With respect to their operation, no one person of the Trinity does anything apart from the others. When one acts, they all act as one. They are distinct, yet inseparable with respect to their operation. Now, that's a lot to think about. Don't be thrown off by the simplicity of the preposition in that's used here to describe this doctrine. (laughs) That two-letter preposition in this particular context has a glorious Trinitarian doctrine bursting out of it that is really beyond us to fully comprehend. We know it's true because God's Word says it, but it's beyond us to fully wrap our minds around it all, and that's okay. That's appropriate. It's good to be able to step back in awe and just say, wow, I'm absolutely blown away by the Trinity. Our triune God is awesome. And not in the flippant way that that word gets used. He is truly worthy of absolute awe. I believe the Puritan Thomas Watson, he captures so well the exaltedness of the mystery of the Trinity in this way. He says the Trinity is purely an object of faith. The plumb line of reason is too short to fathom this mystery. But where reason cannot wade, their faith must swim. This sacred doctrine, though it not be against reason, yet it is above reason. In other words, you have to take God at his word on it. It's a situation of finite creatures trying to behold an infinite God. We cannot exhaustively comprehend him. But we can know things that are true and untrue about the Trinity according to what God has revealed about it in his word. And what God has revealed about himself, we should endeavor to study and to know to the extent that we can. And so we learn in this passage of the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. And the major implication of that doctrine that's being drawn out here in this passage is that to know Jesus is to know the Father. Because of this doctrine, that is possible. Because He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. 
So Jesus addresses the blurry vision of the disciples by continuing to love them through teaching them the truth about himself. He is in the Father. The Father is in him. Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? His question here insinuates that this Trinitarian truth is one that ought to be believed by the disciples because Jesus has been repeatedly displaying it to them over all this time that he has spent with them. He's been showing the Father to them. And Jesus continues to sharpen them with his teaching concerning the mutual indwelling of him and his Father in each other. Look back at verse 10. It says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus now shifts back to using the plural you to addressing the group as a whole. The words that Jesus has spoken to them and the miraculous signs that Jesus has performed before them, these demonstrate that the works of the Father in him. Jesus had already made similar statements like this about himself with his disciples around to hear. Regarding his words, let's look at John chapter 8 and verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. Now that the he, I am he, the he is actually not there in the original language. He just says, I am. And so there he's basically calling himself, I am. Calling himself by the covenant name that God revealed of himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He's calling himself God there. And then Jesus speaks of his inseparability from his father in terms of what he says. He speaks what his father has taught him. Regarding his works, John chapter 5, verse 36, he also relates to the father. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus speaks of his inseparability from his Father, not only in terms of his words, but also in terms of the works that he does. Jesus does the works that his Father has given him to do, and therefore these works testify of who he is in relation to his Father who has sent him. And then we come to what Jesus says in John 14, verse 10, and understand that Jesus' words and works 
show that the Father abides in him and is working in him. Jesus had been showing his Father to his disciples for the last three years in his words and in his miraculous signs which he had performed. The Father was abiding in the Son and doing his works in the Son, in all of that, in his words, in his works. In verse 11, Jesus acknowledges the disciples continued struggle to simply take him at his word concerning these things. He says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus calls the disciples to believe him when he says that he's in the Father and the Father is in him. It should be enough to simply take him at his word. But even as they struggle to take him at his word, Jesus says, at least consider the signs that he has performed to show in a more tangible way to them that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. They don't need to see a theophany. Jesus has already performed many signs before them that serve to authenticate what he says about himself. He shows himself to be who he's saying he is. Jesus is saying, if you're having trouble with what I'm saying, at least think about what you've seen. Think about what these signs communicate about who I am, that I am, (laughs) and believe. The Father abides in the Son, and He does His works in the Son. And if Jesus' signs are His Father's works, then Jesus' words are likewise His Father's works. So that whether Jesus was performing signs or whether He was speaking words, it was all a display of the Father abiding in Him and doing His works in Him and through Him. Jesus is driving home for the disciples that he reveals his Father. Now just listen to how this truth about Jesus, about him revealing his Father, reverberates through the New Testament. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God. Wow, he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1, verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And even from the Old Testament, we think of of Isaiah, who's already written 
of this one. Isaiah 7, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the remedy to our blurry vision of Jesus. To keep taking in the glorious teaching of the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and to believe it. And as we gain a clearer vision of Christ, that in turn will bring comfort to our hearts when we are troubled. As we learned the last time, Believing in Jesus is the medicine we need to comfort our hearts when we are troubled. And not only does Jesus guarantee that he will come for believers in the future to take them home to the Father, as we learned last time, but we learn here that Jesus connects you to the Father even now. So that to know Jesus now is to know the Father now. To have a relationship with Jesus now is to have a relationship with his heavenly Father now. And what that also implies is that if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus now, you don't have a saving relationship with his heavenly Father now. Do you know the Jesus we read of here? Is he the Lord of your life? Does your life revolve around him? Or does it revolve around you? If he's more of an afterthought for you and not the center of your life, you need to know that you're in great peril. The Bible teaches that each one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin against an infinitely holy God deserves an infinite punishment under his righteous wrath. That leaves us in a severe predicament. But you also need to know that this God who is infinitely holy is also rich in mercy. Incredibly rich in mercy. And he has provided a remedy for the predicament that you're in. He sent Jesus, his only begotten son, his beloved son, to bear that infinite punishment that his people deserve for their sins. God's own Son took on human flesh like ours. He lived a perfect life in the place of his people. Then he died the death that they deserve for their sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But oh so glorious. Three days later he rose. He rose and he demonstrated that he had satisfied the wrath of God against the sins of his people. And he calls on those who see their need for his salvation to repent of your sins and to believe in him and to live. Let today be the day that you trust wholly upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let today be the day that your soul passes out of spiritual death into everlasting life with Jesus reigning as king of your life. 
Jesus loves his disciples, continues to press into teaching them more about himself. That's how he's loving them here. He works to sharpen their vision of him. He works to help them see with greater clarity who he is, because that's what they need. And that is what he does for us who believe. He provides graces to us that help us to grow in seeing him more clearly. Prayer, it's a privilege for us to be able to pray. We should persist in asking of the Lord that he would overcome the blurriness in our vision of Christ, that he would help us to see Christ more clearly. If you've been neglecting that, coming to him in prayer, come back to it. There's the Word of God. We should persist in meditating in God's Word day and night like we see the blessed man in Psalm 1 doing. Saturating our minds with God's revelation of truth concerning Himself and the gospel of Christ that it reveals so that our perception of Christ is sharpened. If you've been neglecting that, come back to it what you need and the grace of fellowship we need other believers in our lives holding us accountable out of love for us and building us up in the faith if you've been neglecting that come back to it let me encourage you saints make the most of the opportunities you have to be connected into the life of the church I'd urge you to get yourself plugged in as much as possible to various opportunities available to you to hear the Word of God taught Sunday mornings and during the days of the week and various opportunities for fellowship and prayer and serving alongside fellow believers. These are graces of the Lord available to us to continue to sharpen our perspective of who Christ is. These are graces to help us see Christ more clearly and the implications that that has for our lives. The ministry of the local church needs to be a priority in our walk with Christ as we seek to grow in knowing and following Him together. One other implication of the glory of Christ's deity that's just bursting out here in this passage that I want us to think about is Jesus is not your buddy. He is gracious. He is compassionate toward us. He is approachable because of his mercy and grace and his mediation for us. But he is God. And so you need to treat him with the utmost reverence. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is holy. And we need to be careful to regard him as such. He is God incarnate. A holy God, but a gracious and merciful God. Now, I I marvel as I think about this moment in the upper room and how Jesus, what he's saying here, really comes out 
when you look at the beginning of this gospel that he's writing. Think of him hearing what Jesus is saying here. And then you think about him later writing chapter 1 in the gospel of John. Let's, let's flip over there. And John opens his gospel with, with a glorious description of Jesus as the Word, who, according to verse 1, was in the beginning with God, but who also himself was God. And then in verse 14, he tells us that this divine Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that he's the only begotten from the Father. And then verse 18 tells us that this divine word is the only begotten God. He is God. And that he explained his Father to us. He has revealed the Father. If you know him, you know his Father. If you've seen him, you've seen his Father. But we see here that Jesus is teaching in this passage we've been looking at this morning, it eventually sunk in deep for John and for Philip and for the other disciples so that John could write this glorious summary here in John 1 of what Jesus was describing in that upper room. Jesus exposed the blurry vision among the disciples and then he sharpened their blurry vision by continuing to teach them about himself. He loved them by teaching them. He spoke comfort to their troubled hearts by pressing them to believe in him. As we see Jesus doing that with his disciples in the upper room, may we be moved to listen to him to repent of our dullness of hearing. May we pay close attention to his every word because it's all true and perfect. May we trust what he says about himself regardless of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in at any given time. No matter what kind of trouble you're facing, he is the Lord, he changes not. Your situations change, but he doesn't. So let us fix our gaze on him. Be anchored in him, our solid rock, our immovable rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to come in the flesh, that we might know you, that we might see your great love displayed in his death and so many other ways in his ministry on this earth to his disciples. I ask God that you would expose and correct our blurry vision of Christ. May our apprehension of him become clearer and clearer. We say with Paul that we count all things to be loss 
because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a joy it is to call him Lord. May we know him more and thereby be transformed more and more into his likeness for your glory. And may we be emboldened to tell others about our glorious Savior that they might come to see Christ with clarity, come to know Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.